like again, it also goes for like everybody else. Like be supportive, yeah. supportive, friendly, yeah, funny, you know, understanding, knowledgeable. They are just like friends to anybody else. You know, it may be a little bit different, but they do show their care. Hello, my name is Anthony Esser. And my name is Miles Woodfield, and welcome to our podcast, Better With You. Here, we bring together people from all walks of life to dive deep into unique stories of how friendships can shape and guide us for the better. A good friend is family that you find along the way. I actually didn't like him when I first met him. (laughs) Anyway. It's beautiful to have friends. So you're pretty much the greatest friend I've ever had. Aww. So, as a special ed teacher, what has it been like watching your students navigate the kind of rocky terrain of making and maintaining friendships? I'd say for the students that I work with, uh, rocky terrain turns into mountainous terrain. Um, Mm. It doesn't, it's a very conscious decision to be friendly and to be sociable for a lot of the guys that I work with. Um, So I had a student last year uh, we were talking about his friends and i was like who's your best friend you know i guess who he said hmm. he said me i was his best friend oh, and i wow. was like that's fascinating because you're not my friend at all you're my student you know and and there's a there's a big difference there um so i think sometimes the, the lines of what is a friend and what is not and how do you maintain a friendship and you know for a person who can't even look somebody in the eye you know, talking to them at the supermarket, then how do you expect them to do what you and I do, which is to say we talk every day, you know? How do you expect somebody to go through the anxiety and the real discomfort of uh, uh, a social interaction? It's really hard, Um, but it doesn't mean that it's hopeless. Um, It just means that the learning curve is a little sharper than uh, people who I would say are neurotypical. That being said, I know some neurotypical people who are complete jerks and don't know how to maintain friendships either, you know? <laughs> sure. Some of, my, some of my completely antisocial students um, are, I'd say, better friends, but they, they're more awkward, but they're better friends. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, so it's not essentially the quality of the friendship. It's just sort of how it looks. You know, when you start to learn about people, you start to learn about their motivation for doing things, and you start to learn about the way their brain works, you can really find a lot of value in the way they present their friendship because you start to understand what it looks like. I mean, much in the same way that my friends who, you know, may have a different complexion than me or they may have a different religion than me or they may have a different part of the country that they come from. You know, my dad has friends from Virginia and their friendship looks a lot different than my friends from New York and, you know, my friends who are, um, you know, Muslim or Protestant look different than my friends who are Catholic and that's okay. You just learn to appreciate the little idiosyncrasies all along the way. Sure. All of them, as opposed to expecting everyone to be like you. So today I have the privilege of interviewing another professional who works with young people with autism and other developmental disorders. Um, we talk about some of the struggles his clients have decoding social cues and some of the strengths that they bring to friendships. He talks about his clients with this kind of real empathy, but also admiration. Um I think that attitude really helped him in our first topic of discussion. Um, We talked about how he formed friendships of trust with the clients and communities that he served. 
My name is Jonathan Rhodes. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I do most of my work in private practice and um, education efforts with uh, individuals uh, with autism spectrum disorder and other developmental diagnoses. Most of Jonathan's clients are young men who he works with on a variety of issues, including sexuality, dating, and friendships. After becoming licensed, but before opening his private practice, Jonathan worked for Child and Family Services in the District of Columbia. He mainly helped families around reunification efforts. So the foster families were either, you know, taking care of the kids while their reunification was getting ready to happen with the biological family, or, you know, they were getting ready to adopt, or to guardianship, or what have you, or any, I mean, any number of things that could go on about with that. But a lot of it was around education of foster families, what they needed to do to take proper care of the kids, and also a lot with the bio families, you know, what they needed to work on and what they needed to have in place. Not just skills for taking care of the children, but you know, having the infrastructure, having the knowledge, knowing who to go to, knowing what resources were out there, making sure that they could actually access the resources and access the help, and um, you know, making sure that the environment was adapted to for their needs, for the kids' needs. At first, Jonathan had a tough time figuring out how to build trust with the families he served. He was a young white man working for the government who found himself serving in Southeast DC, where most families are from a low socioeconomic background and in minority communities. And a lot of mistrust, a lot of resentment, a lot of, you know, hostility initially. So how do I get along with these people? What am I going to have to do? So basically they turn the power over to them. You know, basically it's like, this is what I'm here to do. It's your choice. You know, but you tell me what's going on for you. You know you. You know what you can handle. You know what you can't. You know what's going on with the family situation. You know the community. Sure, they may be, they have lost their kids because of drugs. That doesn't mean, though, that they're not a human being, that they have a tough time and they can't try to get it back together. And being upfront, and being blunt about it, but not being rude. I asked Jonathan if there was a client who he felt a kind of friendship with, and he was ready with stories that kind of restored my faith in humanity, where unlikely people took care of each other. A uh, young guy who was in his teens who was born addicted to crack cocaine through his mom, and he had significant health issues, you know, possibly some intellectual uh you know, disability on top of that as well as a result of his first year that I worked with him, he had gotten a costume for to be Batman for Halloween. His foster mom didn't want to take him to be Batman. Sorry, didn't want to take him trick or treat him. And he was really upset. He started having a behavior meltdown. It was one thing he was looking forward to doing, going to trick or treating. So I took him instead. It's on my list of probably the top five unsafest things I ever did for myself. But we went into, because like, we were like in the worst neighborhood in southeast D.C. at night. Me looking like I do, and him dressed as Batman. He had a wonderful time. And he also kept me safe. You know, he kept people from bothering me. He told me, okay, you're not going to go down this street. You're not going to go over here. You're going to be stay in this area. We're going to go here. You know, he, he did. He kept me safe. And he even said, would say, okay, well, when you leave this neighborhood, you want to drive this way so that you're not going to get... So I wouldn't necessarily say that it was like a friendship, you know, in like the way, in the traditional sense of it, but there was certainly a mutual respect and a mutual caring for him and for him for myself. Was there in that year that it took to kind of build trust with him, Mm -hmm. 
how did you deal with that? Was it exhausting? Oh to yes, continually show up, but not. Oh yes, yes, yeah. it, it was. It was. It was exhausting for everybody involved because these kids are treated a lot of times as throwaway kids, and they know it. They know that they are part of a system that does it, that's trying to go through the motions, that says they want to do something, but they drag it out. A lot of stuff does not happen. I'm not going to get into how the system is set up or how it works, but suffice it to say that the way that everybody works with these kids is not always the nicest. And people presume that all these kids don't give a crap, are dumb, or just bad kids, so they, and they react. You know, they when they're not respected, when they're not treated, you know, as people, when they don't get what they want, or also they don't have a good, because most of these kids don't have a history of discipline at all, or a history of stable families, or expectations of what it is. You know, very low self-esteem, a lot of depression. They got nothing going for them, so why not act out? This kid that I worked with, his way of showing, you know, when he was pissed off, Part of, my, part of my language of that, you know, uh, but, and actually, pun intended, sort of, because that's what he would do, he would urinate. He would pee in my car, he would pee in the office, he'd pee in his foster parents' house, he'd pee all over the beds and everything like that, kind of, it's very, it's much like prison behavior. There was nothing more that could be done to him. He was out of his mo- biological mom's house, not near her, he was being, you know, written up and in trouble all the time at school and all the time with the agency and everybody telling him what to do and he was non-compliant with his medication but he had no power. He had no control. It was it was a lot of trial and everything, you know, just kind of dealing with, alright, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm taking him back from bio mom's house because she didn't show up from a visit until 1am and I know he's probably going to take a leak in my car because he doesn't want to go back home to the foster mom's house. And i got to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to do me any good to yell at him. Mm-hmm. Or he's just going to do it again. What worse could happen to him? Yeah. What worse? You know? So, it kind of gets to like a level of, like I don't want to say mutually assured destruction, if you will, like in like the, the nuclear terms parlance, but it, it kind of gets to a point where there's like, Honestly, you can't help there, but there being like a mutual understanding and a mutual agreement. It's like, you know, that you can do your worst and that I can take it, but I can take it with grace, I can take it with fortitude, and I can take it with resolve. Yeah. Which also commands respect in that community. Sure. Being able to handle tough stuff and not flinch, not back down. Yeah. You know, that I could take it from him. And he could dish it out, but then I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. And I was still showing off. Yeah. Not to change gears sure. too too quickly, but oh, yeah. that just really... Do you think that that capacity to to have somebody show their worst and be able to take it with grace and, and, and just kind of still be there and receive it, um, do you think that's a character of... Of like a really good friendships sometimes, or what do you think? I, about? I, I, I do agree. I mean, I forget there's an actual quote about that somewhere that I really like that I kind of used to it was like you know it takes courage to stand up to your enemies but it takes real bravery to stand up to your friends you know I think that I mean like I said he's not he and I were not friends in a traditional sense but I do think that it was certainly a big piece of the glue part of the glue that held things together so that we could take it and there was times it was really tough there were times I went to be like well you son of a you know 
or where I'd lose my cool, and he'd lose his cool. But the thing is, they both kept coming back, you know? So it's like, not saying that what you did was okay, but that, you know, that's not you. That behavior is not you. That incident is not you. I'm still working with you. You're still a human being to me. You still command my... Mm-hmm. But I do think overall, that, but that is that is part of, I think, you know, being in a friendship or a relationship is that, you know, you have these tough moments with people and, you know, you don't let that be the defining factor. That, you know, kind of taking them as they are and accepting all those pieces. Of course, it's your choice if you want to be a friend with them or be in a relationship with them, I think, you know, considering what they bring to the table and all those different parts. But loyalty and, you know, basically sticking with it is really important, I think. It gives people, shows, it gives, it gives people faith, it gives people confidence that they can make it work, I think, that they can keep people. What was it about the, like, the autism and, like, developmental disability community that, that you got involved there? Sure. Like, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I guess for part of, a lot of it would be that I guess I feel like I connect with them. Um, I don't have a diagnosis of autism myself, but I have a number of autism-esque behaviors and also my way of thinking. I do have ADHD, but I'm unrepentant with that. I'm not medicated. I'm perfectly happy with that, you know. But I've had a lot of struggles and in terms of, you know, just like dealing with sensory issues, social anxiety, just anxiety in general, not being able to really kind of connect necessarily with people. I mean, and of course there's more to autism than that. But, you know, also just the way I think is a bit different. And that's how I kind of, you know, all these people have different ways of thinking. I mean, they're human beings too, but they just, they do things a lot differently. And that's okay. They kind of figure out how they do that. I just, I guess I just felt a connection. You know, that's really about, you know, and having struggled socially myself, it's like, I get it. I get what it's like for you. I get what it's like when you don't have a clue what's going on. Or, you know, you try to, you try so hard to connect, try so hard socially, and you fail. I get that. And, yeah, I mean, so really it's a lot of empathy. Yeah. And a lot of joining with them. If you were to kind of work with this same community, kind of towards these same goals, um, but you had to pick, like, a different field. Like, a a different, instead of social work, instead of therapy um, and counseling, is there some other way that... um, that you think you would address some of these same issues? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's definitely a lot of needs for these types of things. I think, you know, that there is a lot of wonderful efforts that are being made in social efforts, but there's still also a lot of isolation. You know, there's a lot of isolation. So working in that area to try to kind of, you know, create some options, especially around coming up with, around, you know, dating and relationships. Some want to date somebody with their own similar diagnosis, and people want to date somebody without. Mm-hmm. You know, that's perfectly fine. But finding a way to make that happen can be tough and complex. So that would be kind of an area where I'd want to work. So maybe we get into the dating. Yeah. Maybe make a dating app. Well, <laughs> actually, actually, that's some of the idea that has been coming up, actually. Because, I mean, there are these dating groups. And fortunately, though, a lot of them are not maintained. And they're not, you know, or they're, like, you know, all over the place. They're, like, scattered people from across the country. You know, there's a whole big sociological background of it. But, you know, this idea still that people with, diagnos- with developmental disabilities or other disabilities are kind of like an other. They're different. They're not the same. I can't connect with them. I don't understand them. It makes me uncomfortable. And, you know, a lot of how we make get our information and a lot of how we figure out what's okay, what's not okay, is by observing, by watchmaking, by we, we judge. So I see somebody who has a developmental disability or whatever like that, that's not comfortable for me, I don't get it, can't relate, can't connect, I'm not going to go near them. 
necessarily. I mean, I might be willing to be their friends, but as a relationship option, maybe not. People like to hang out, people like to be around like people. People with developmental disabilities, I think they do enjoy being around people similar, but they also, the thing I found mostly, is that they want to be like everybody else. They are so much like everybody else in so many different ways that they deserve to be like everyone else and treated that way. But they want friendships with people who are not diagnosed with friendships like you and I. They want relationships with people like that too. Mm-hmm. And why not? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, what are some other struggles that these young men you work with face in forming friendships, what? meaningful relationships? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. I mean, so there's, there's a number of different struggles. A lot of it can be, you know, I mean, just basically around lack of confidence, lack of self esteem. If you've tried repeatedly to make friends, tried repeatedly to be social, and you've been shot down every time, would you want to continue trying? Yeah, you probably give up. Understanding unspoken cues, being able to respond appropriately to unspoken cues. You might be able to learn how to do it in one situation, but then not in another. And you might know, you might have the tools, but you don't know necessarily which situation to use them in. A guy that was in my group actually had the best example I can come up with. Making friends for me is like having a, being told to build a Maserati and being given an instruction book that has half the instructions missing and given half the tools and not knowing which tools to use in which situation, which tools to use on which part to construct the car. People with autism, people with other developmental diagnoses are assumed not to care, assumed not to have empathy, and not to, and to be off in their own little world. Well, that's not true. They do it in a different way. You know, a lot of times there's also sensory issues involved. You know, so you shake hands, or you give a hug. Well, what if you don't like hugs? What if you don't like shaking hands? What if it's uncomfortable for you? Eye contact is a big one. We do most, everybody says, you know, talks about how much of the human interaction occurs through making eye contact and being able to interpret uh, cues and intent and, you know, meaning, what have you, through eye contact. But if you, if it's so uncomfortable for you, and a lot of times these people experience what we may think of as emotional discomfort or awkwardness, but they experience it very intensely, very, very intensely, oftentimes physically. It can be painful. Eye contact for me uh-huh. is very difficult. I'm making an effort right now, yeah. you know, um, to do that. But I get it. It makes me feel awkward. It makes me feel like, ugh, like I feel like I want to get out of the room. Mm-hmm. That can happen with anybody else. But then you say, well, why aren't you making eye contact? Well, you need to look at that. You need to make eye contact. We think we're sending a message to teach. But also what we're doing is sending a message that that's not okay, that you're doing something wrong. But then when you do express it, people are like, well, that's BS. You know, because they can't see what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. You're only telling them. You still got to do it. Right. You know, it's, it's tough. And right. I, guess I can empathize with them in that way, especially around that. Yeah, it sounds really yeah. overwhelming, especially that illustration of uh, constructing the Maserati. Like, to me, I hear that, and I just think, oh, my gosh, like, that just sounds so stressful. My, my question there is... Um, is it worth it <laughs> and why? You know, I mean, being such a struggle, are there uh, people who just kind of throw up their hands and say, well, whatever, I'm not going to bother forming friendships and, and isolate? Or if they put in the work to do it, why? You know, what's mm-hmm. to them valuable about friendship, you I, know, getting past those things? So I, I think it depends purely on the individual. Some people are happy as a clam being on their own. You know, couldn't care less. If they are 
not socializing with anybody. I have a couple guys I work with, you know, they'd be they're just as fine watching a video all by themselves. Like, you know, spend the entire day alone. They're perfectly happy doing that. Or I have others who break down because they don't have friends. You know, I mean, having friends is definitely worth it. It's important to have supports. It's important to have people that you can talk to about a wide different, or be, that can support you and understand you about a wide range of different things. So if your parents might not get that, you know, I mean, well, you know, as a teen says, like, Mom, Dad, you don't understand me. You don't care. You don't get it. You know, the peers do. So, you know, having that kind of, it's important to have people like that. Also, I mean, if you have friends, and that can be huge for the self, self-esteem, self-esteem, people like you. People think you have something to offer. They see something valuable. They see something special. They are giving their approval. Mm-hmm. Approval. Really affirming. Yes, affirming. Yes, they're giving affirming. Self-affirmation, self-approval, self-acceptance is hard for a lot of people to come by it. It's hard for a lot of people to stick with, too, and actually stay with it. We, a lot of times, we are very externalized individuals. You look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at Instagram, the likes, the thumbs up, you know, things like that. When people make comments, how affirming is that? How nice is it to feel special? To feel, it feels great, you know? It's almost like a drug, I would say, in a way. Like you get in the likes, you get in that moment of, yeah, awesome, yeah. And same thing you say, having people say, I like you, people showing that they care. It feels wonderful. But we do have a need for external reinforcement, external affirmation. You know, that's where friendship can definitely come in. And it can also help us, though, build our own internal. But it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. people, a lot of people can be really hard on themselves. Sure. And, yeah. yeah. So what are the strengths that they might bring to friendships or relationships? I, I think it was, well, loyalty, for one. They are so, you know... Eager. I mean, and sometimes, sometimes if we're working against them, because you know, sometimes if you come across as appearing desperate or you come across as like overly eager or something like that, you might push people away. It's like, let's be friends. Like, Ugh, I just met you two minutes ago. <laughs> but you know, but see, but that's the thing. But that's something that they do deal yeah. with. So, but the fact is that they want to make friends and they are so happy when they have them that they're really loyal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I laugh because yeah. I really relate to that. My friends, yes. will, when they're listening to this, they will mm-hmm. they will laugh because that's yeah. how I come across. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 but I mean, it's like it was like that too for me too for myself. I mean, and I, I get it because it's like you know, if somebody be like, "Hey, how's it going?" You know, you think they're being really nice. Well, hey, let's be friends. But that's just being a nicety, or it just might be you know, make a conversation. Like going back briefly to the thing about you know, understanding the nuances of social interaction. You're told in social skills class, "Hey, how's it going?" means that they want to talk, or you know, that they're being friendly. But that can also just be like, you know, passing some guy on the street, and you go up and say, hey, how's it going, what's up? And they're like, you know? Right. You know, I think we we have a little bit of a suspicion of mm-hmm. of, uh, of friendship and of yeah. kind of personal interaction sure. sometimes, I mean, you know? It's tough as guys, too. Yeah. Because right. guys... You want to like, grab a coffee? Yeah. It's like really... <laughs> it is like, oh, uh, you know, because I mean, there's like, again, for all the changes that are happening in society and everything, there's like more acceptance and understanding of like, you know... Uh, like homosexuality and you know same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, transgender, and everything. There's still a lot of unspoken Ugh, about that. I still remember being, you know, like when I was coming out of the kid, like you know, talking with guys. You were talking about like teasing. You were horseplaying, roughing around. You weren't talking about feelings. Like, hey, let's go grab a coffee. You know, mm-hmm. like, hey, let's go to the movies. You know, you don't want to say you want to go to the movies with me. You don't ask, are you my friend? 
You know, it's like something that you have to read into and just intuit. That's very difficult yeah. to do. It's, um, I mean, as guys too, it's like, you know, don't talk about feelings. Mm-hmm. Dads don't talk about feelings with their kids. A lot of parents also assume that, you know, person with disabilities might not even understand what that feelings are. Or yet, but they feel, they may not necessarily understand it in terms of like the abstract concept, but they know they feel things and they do feel it very intensely. They experience it their own way. Yeah. But being able to have that conversation and being able to make it okay is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I just relate as like an yeah. adult male. Yes. You know, you want to, oh, yeah. you move to a different place or whatever, you want to like, initiate a yeah, friendship. You go, it's you like, know. hey, you want to go out? Yeah, it's like, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, what, I don't, what, you, what, what does this mean? For? What do you yeah, want? Yeah, exactly. Right. What, are you, what are you looking for? It's like, no, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, and like, I mean, I would do this. I was like, ah, uh, you know, I hope they ask first or they say something first because I'm not going to be the one. I'm not going to be the one that comes across as being, you know, attracted to them or sort of be a weird guy. I'm not going to be that guy, you right. know, but they're not going to be that either. It's obviously experienced, like, yeah. maybe much more intensely, but there's, we all have some sure. level of social fears. Or yes, anxiety, we're, right? as we're afraid of rejection. Right. You know, we, I mean, rejection sucks. And how we internalize that we are excellent a lot of times at turning it on ourselves and beating ourselves up about it. We don't like it, so we might not even make the effort too, just because we know we avoid it. Mm. If we avoid trying, it's not going to happen. But then we don't have the success either. We don't take that chance. Like again, it also goes for like everybody else. Like be supportive, yeah. supportive, friendly, yeah, funny, you know, understanding, knowledgeable. They are just like friends to anybody else. You know, it may be a little bit different, but they do show their care. So I kind of what I tell people especially with parents as we're going, like, you know, if their kids are going into, like, relationships or, you know, wanting to date or having friends. They're not friends. They just sit next to each other and they play video games. I'm like, suspend your disbelief, you know, because, again, friendship, relationships are things that we have social constructs for. Society has views on what they are. But these are not like that. They have, their brains are working a different way, and they've had to figure out ways to work with that brain, ways to live with it. It may be a friendship to them. It may be a relationship to them. Yeah. That's what matters. Yeah. I mean, it's like I had one kid in child welfare that I worked with who was uh, spastic quadriplegic. And he had a girlfriend. You know? They just sat next to each other in their respective wheelchairs. They'd hold hands and they'd smile. Might not necessarily think much of it, but they referred to each other as girlfriend and boyfriend. So, you know, I mean, for them, that's what matters. I think at the end of the day, is that they have strengths like everybody else, mm-hmm. you know? It just may look a little bit different. Um, so kind of this random question I want to throw out there is, uh, do you have a favorite movie? Are you into movies? Or yes. <laughs> yes, no, I am. I am a favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I really like uh, horror films and sci-fi films. I am an unapologetic, unrepentant fan of B-horror movies from the nice. 1950s and 60s. Oh, wow. So i got to say one of my favorite movies is the original... Godzilla from 1950, I think it's 1954, and also 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Disney version with the giant squid. Loved it. Those are among my favorite movies. I have different favorites for different genres, but I'm really big into the campy sci-fi. Right. And that's another thing, just again, real quickly about with friends, is that they accept that. Because it used to be, oh gee, I was like a closet fan, like like in high school or middle school, because like, loser, you know, nerd, geek. And so I was like, huh, you know, but now I'm just like, all right. That's who I know, am. Guess what I'm as part of it, you know. Yes, I was like, I'm excited. The man from Planet X is on tonight. <laughs> and it's clearly a 
vacuum cleaner that's been covered in foil to look like a weird spaceship. <laughs> I, am, awesome. I am really, really stoked to see it. Okay, and then my last question is, sure. um, what does it mean to be a friend to you, especially a good friend? I, I honestly, I can't say it's like I ever really think about it that much. I give it that much serious thought. I just like, I know when that's there. I know when it's happening. And I also uh, know, like, I guess it's like a certain intuit that you know you it's really hard to get. It's like these abstract things, it's so hard to explain. Just feel it and just know it. There have been, I mean, I have a number of friends that have been important. At least speaking to them in general, as they've been really important, more so because they've been supportive and that they've not given up. You know, and that they have, like, to speak to earlier, you know, not walked away or left because of something stupid. I've been a dozen other stupid things, you know, and I've been stupid with people, uh, you know, and with the fact that they're still there. I mean, that, that's, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, it's okay to be human. Again, the behavior's not cool, but it's okay to be human. And because that's part of you, too, is the negative pieces. You have that whole acceptance. It's really important. It, it means, I guess then for myself, a friendship means a freedom to be me and my whole self and my created self. It's a freedom of self. So when he talks about the freedom of self at the end, yeah. the ability to walk into a relationship with a person and not have to think about everything you say and everything you do and everything you are. Um, I think that's really wonderful. It's very beautiful because I mean, it's very obvious that there are some people who have autism or disabilities in general who um, have a hard time fitting into those societal boundaries. And um, you know, the ability to not have to worry about that must be a really liberating thing. Um, yeah, I know you and I both have our own issues and some of them are social in, in, in their nature. And, um, you know, there's a sense that uh, I kind of wish that I could let it go sometimes. And I wish that I could walk up to a person and be able to be free to be who I want to be. But I know that when I'm with you, I don't necessarily have to curb my language or curb the way that I dress or comb my hair a certain way because that's what the world expects out of me. And I like that. I think that's what our friendship is really valuable for. You know, you have told me things about yourself that might scare a person, and I've told you things about me that might scare a person. And, um, you know, I think for you and I, we've gotten to the point that it's kind of all on the table. And, um, you know, there's nothing nothing there that's going to scare us away, you know. But I, I imagine that for a person who struggles with those cues to begin with, that's really hard to establish that kind of rapport. We can get to that point and be able to live that freedom. I think it's important to recognize that reality, though. Like, we do have social norms, and people with these diagnoses do have trouble conforming. And I think friendships that let you be yourself, where there aren't so many expectations, where someone has put in the time and effort to get to know your body language and 
personal quirks and give you the benefit of the doubt when you say something a bit off. Um, I think that's more than kind of letting your freak flag fly in a sense. It's having someone who gets you and supports you and gives you that affirmation of just sticking around. Um, he talks a lot in this episode about building trust and building trust is a lot of work. Um, and to know that someone values your friendship enough to put in that work is really cool. I think. Absolutely. And, um, perhaps maybe you just don't fly your freak flag as high as I fly mine, but, uh, (laughs) no, but I think you're right. Um, I, I think it's kind of a struggle, you know, to figure out how we want to present ourselves to the world. Um, at the beginning of the episode, Jonathan talks about his ADHD and being um, kind of unrepentant in his words, likely not taking any medication and just coping with it. And I think it's probably evolved into being a part of his personality he's proud of and doesn't just tolerate, you know. Um, And I think figuring out who we want to be in relationship and who will accept that can really be difficult. Um, for all of us, regardless of our struggles, um, even if it's more intense for some others. But I think for all of us, in the end, it can be a really beautiful process. Today's guest talked to us about his clients with autism and other developmental disorders. If you or someone you know would like to share your own experience of navigating friendships with a similar diagnosis, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at betterwithyoupodcast at gmail.com. Better With You is hosted by Anthony Esser and Miles Woodfield with help from Pat Hicks and our creative producer, Sarah Bishop. Music in this episode was played by me, Miles Woodfield, on my beloved Gibson mandolin. A special thanks to Andy Bishop and New Radio Media, whose other shows are just as good as this one. Today's episode was edited and produced by Anthony Esser, and if you like this show, remember to give us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow us on social media at Better With You Podcast for extras and previews of upcoming content. Thanks for listening. We love making this podcast. And as always, it's better with you. Are you a fan of the uh, the Max Shrek um, Nosferatu? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Terrifying. I, yeah, <laughs> I I thought uh, it was enough because I used to be terrified. I still was like, I can watch horror movies and sit through them and not have an issue now. But when I was younger, ET scared the crap out of me. You're not the first person no, to say that. I'm I still. I, the thing is, I can't. I still can't watch it. I can watch, you know, other horror movies and not blink. You know, I watch The Exorcist. Watch all these other ones. You know. Heck, I ate a hamburger while watching the scene in the exercise where she's going, and then, you know, spewing <laughs> everywhere. But I still can't watch E.T. That's so funny. Yeah. I think, I think that's my wife's 
I'm trying yeah. to remember now. I don't want to misquote her, but I think she's terrified of that movie too. Yeah, it's just something about I don't know what it is. Something about it. <laughs> yeah.